Well, the title of my sermon this morning, Joy is Greater Than Happiness, and maybe you have a hard time distinguishing between the two in your mind. Uh, I hope I can help with that today. But joy is greater than happiness. The big idea, Christ is sufficient for true contentment. And if you believe that this morning, say amen. Amen. Not Christ plus, but Christ is alone sufficient for true contentment. Uh, When I was in seminary back in the Boston area, back in 2007, 8, and 9, I remember seeing a movie in the theater, and it was uh, a movie with Will Smith in pursuit of happiness. And I remember thinking at the end, yeah, that was a good movie. There were, I think, some um, redeeming qualities, especially the relationship between a father and a son. I really enjoyed that aspect of the movie, just how much this father loved and cared for his son, survived with his son. But, you know, when I left the theater, I was disheartened. I recognized a false message in the movie that concerned me. Maybe you're thinking, that's my favorite movie. You better be careful. Well, if you recall the story, Will Smith's character, he's essentially a single dad. He's struggling to make ends meet. Him and his son end up on the streets. And and really, from the beginning of the movie, we see that this man is pursuing the American dream. And in the film, the American dream is equated with happiness. And then he finally gets it. He gets it. He gets happiness by becoming financially stable. So what's the message of the movie? This is what I took away. Without wealth, stability, and security, there can be no happiness. At least that was the message uh, in the movie, and that is the message in our culture as well. A whole false theology has been built on this worldly worldview, and it's the prosperity gospel. Maybe you've heard it called the health and wealth gospel. This message, this pseudo-gospel, has foolishly attempted to marry the gospel to the world, right? The world says we need wealth to be happy, and Jesus is the answer, right? If you want wealth, get Jesus, and then you'll be happy. Not with Jesus alone, but Jesus, because through Jesus, he's a means to getting wealth, health, and then you'll be happy. Everyone wants to be happy, right? I mean, I think if someone asked you this morning, hey, do you want to be happy? I don't think you'd say no. <laughs> no, I don't want to. I want to be miserable. Nobody would say that. Everyone wants to be happy, but what is better than happiness? Maybe you're thinking, I don't know. What is better than happiness, Chris? I mean, that's, never thought of that. You know, I thought happiness was kind of the end-all, be-all. What is better than happiness? What does the Bible say? Joy. Joy. Because of the gospel, we can rejoice. We can rejoice. We can praise our Savior in the midst of suffering, pain, and loss. And again, most humans, when they're dealing with suffering, pain, and loss... They're going to say what's absent from this equation is happiness, right? But the Christian can say, I still have joy. I still have joy. Because what is better than happiness? Joy. Joy. There is hope in Christ. And only Christ can provide joy. Al Mohler writes, there isn't a lot of material at all in the Bible about happiness. Happiness turns out to be not, I'm sorry, Happiness turns out not to be a very important biblical priority. Does that mean that God does not want his people to be happy? No, of course not. 
What it does underline is that a society absolutely determined to be happy will be robbed of something that is far more fundamental and eternal, and that is joy. The biblical concern is joy. Joy, as the Apostle Paul makes very clear, is not dependent on our circumstances. Joy gets us through a long night. Joy gets us through pain. Amen? End quote. Think of it this way. I think this will be helpful. Think of it this way. What are some common foundations, things that people build their lives upon today in our culture? What are some things that people tend to build their lives on? Wealth, one's career, power. I can just amass more power. Maybe a relationship, right? Those are pretty common foundations in our culture. It's true. I'm sure we could add other things. What happens, though, when these foundations are destroyed? If wealth is your foundation and it's taken away, then your whole life is shaken to the core. You're undone, right? That was your foundation. It was everything. It was what you built your life on. It was your security. And now that it's gone, you feel like you're gone. (laughs) The same is true with power or a career. But the Bible does speak of an unshakable foundation, one that will stand the tests of time, and it's Christ and his word. Amen? I love Matthew 7, 24 to 27. I I, I reference it quite a bit. It's the, the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. What does Jesus say? If anyone hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, you're like a man who built his house on the rock. And the winds blew and the rain came. But what happened? The house stood. Why? Because it had as its foundation what? The rock. And the rock is Christ and his word. Again, happiness is such a delicate thing. But Christian joy is forever. It's forever. Who built their life on this unshakable foundation? Who had this kind of joy? Paul. Of course, he's not the only one. I'm looking at many in this room who have built their lives on Christ and his word. And you know the joy that I'm talking about, this enduring joy in the face of loss and hardship. But it's hard to think of a better example than Paul. So let's let's look at Paul. (laughs) Now, before moving on, I want to address the context. And this is important. If you're taking notes, however you can, maybe write this down. I've argued over the past few weeks that Philippians 4, 2 to 9, and we've covered that in the last month, that section provides us with the fruit or evidence of what? What? Oh, I failed you. Maybe it was the microphone, Dave. Maybe you never heard me. Sanctification. Good. Okay, so it was the fruit or evidence of sanctification. That's what Paul is unpacking, Philippians 4, 2 to 9. Okay, so... Remember, these evidences include, number one, and I tried to use our words. I love alliteration. It's just, it's memorable to me. Number one, and this was Philippians 4, 2, and 3, a commitment to relational unity and reconciliation. That is the fruit or evidence of sanctification. One's commitment to relational unity in the church and reconciliation. Amen? Two, Rejoicing in the gospel and resting prayerfully in the Lord. That's Philippians 4, uh, 5, 6, and 7. Okay, actually 4, 5, 6, and 7. 
So rejoicing in the gospel and resting prayerfully in the Lord. Again, fruit or evidence of sanctification. Number three, and this was last week. This is Philippians 4, 8, 9. Whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, or mildable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things, okay? Number three, redirecting our thoughts and actions toward the things of the Lord. Again, fruit or evidence of what? Sanctification. Now, here's what gets really good. This is cool. Okay, so we have these three examples of fruit that should be seen in the lives of God's people who are being sanctified by the Spirit. Okay? And next, what Paul does, this is really interesting. In Philippians 4, 10 to 13, Paul demonstrates these evidences of sanctification in his own life. Each of these is seen in his own life. So he says, hey, here are the evidences. Here's what it looks like. Look at my life. Oh, is that helpful? It's not, hey, this is what you should be doing, but rather, yes, this is what you should be doing. These things should be marking your life, and here's what it looks like in practice. Isn't that helpful? Grace upon grace. Okay. Therefore, the flow of Philippians 4, 2 to 13 is evidence of sanctification and evidence of sanctification in practice from the Apostle Paul. Recall how Paul ended last week's passage in verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, what does he say? Practice these things. Then what does he do? He demonstrates it for us in his own life. Is that helpful? What does a good coach do? Here's what you do and here's what it looks like. Here's how you do it. Okay. I'm just, I'm overwhelmed by God's grace when I read this text. I'm so encouraged. I'm so thankful. Now, maybe you're wondering, and it's fair, Chris, you say we're talking about joy. Joy is one of the key themes in Philippians. Wouldn't you agree with me? I mean, it is. It's, it's talked about a lot. But I didn't hear the word mentioned in our passage this morning. Did you hear it when, when Aaron read the text, Philippians 4, 10 to 13? I did not hear the, the noun, joy. What gives? Well, context is important here. The verbal form of the word, rejoice, right? So there's joy, and the verb is Rejoice is found in Philippians 4.10 and appears everywhere in Philippians. So again, joy is a massive theme in Paul's letter to the Philippians. What's greater than happiness? And where is joy found, I wonder? In Christ. Okay, so let's just do a little review of joy. Philippians 4.10. So we'll kind of start where we're at and then kind of move back. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. So there's the joy. There it is. We found it. Philippians 4.4. 4. This is a few weeks back. Part of that big section, right? Rejoice in the Lord how often? Always. And in case you forgot, again I say, rejoice. I love that. Rejoice in the Lord always. Gotcha, Paul. Again I will say, rejoice. And then Philippians 3.1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Now, the reason for rejoicing seen throughout Philippians is the gospel and the eternal hope the gospel provides. Christian joy, I believe, is epitomized in Philippians 3, 8 to 11. Listen carefully or read with me. Philippians 3, 8 to 11. This is joy epitomized. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as what? Rubbish. 
in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 6.10. What does Paul say there? I love 2 Corinthians. It's the first letter of Paul that I taught verse by verse. Paul says, as sorrowful yet always what? Rejoicing. Again, is joy based on circumstances? No, he's sorrowful. Yet what is he doing? He's rejoicing. As poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing what? Everything. Only in Christ is this joy found, a joy that is greater than happiness. Now, here's some questions to consider as we move into our points. Where does this joy come from, and what is it the result of? So let's dig into our passage now. Why is joy greater than happiness? Number one, Christian joy, if you're taking notes, Christian joy assumes a new perspective, a new perspective. The gospel provides us with a new way, a new sense of making sense of the world around us, a, a new lens by which we see the world, a new worldview, okay, a new perspective. So Christian joy assumes a new perspective. Verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So what's going on here? Paul is here speaking of the Philippian church supporting him while he was in where? Where was he at? He's in prison, okay? This was grounds for doing what? Paul was in need. The church is providing for his need. Actually, it's the Lord through the church, but Paul sees that as an opportunity to do what? To pout? No, to rejoice, okay? So grounds for rejoicing, since it was evidence of the gospel at work in the Philippian church. But it was more than that. How does this relate to a new perspective? Who is the object of Paul's joy? Who is Paul rejoicing in? God. Paul gives God the glory for the gift, the support received from the Philippian believers. I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. Paul is quick to acknowledge their care and concern for him as the work of the Lord. So this new perspective provided by the gospel sees Christ as the grounds for our joy and Christ as the aim of our joy. Here's a practice step. If Again, let's get practical here. Paul, what did he do here? He's writing his letter, but then he pauses. And what does he pause to do? He takes time to do what in his letter? Rejoice. So what should we do? We should pause often to rejoice in the Lord for his work in our life. Salvation in Christ, his ongoing grace, his church, the breath in our lungs. For all these things, we should be what? Thankful, and we should do what? We should rejoice. So pay attention to how God is working in your life and in the lives of others and rejoice in him. The Philippian church's care and concern for Paul is evidence of God's concern and care for Paul, right? And so, again, he's rejoicing in the Lord because what does their care and concern for him 
what does it evidence? What does it point to? God's care and concern for Paul. Christian joy results in a newfound thankfulness toward God. You recognize God as the giver of good gifts. You recognize his sovereign hand in your life. That's the new perspective assumed in Christian joy. Those who have true gospel joy see things differently. Paul had an others-focused mentality. He was rejoicing in prison, which is strange, right? Isn't it strange? He's rejoicing in prison. Why? Because of the evidence of God at work in the Philippian church. He was overjoyed in their fruit. In sum, Christian joy acknowledges God as the source of all good things and further rejoices in God's work in others. The perspective of the world is more often what? Look at what I did. Look at what was done for me. It's selfish. Christian joy is outwardly focused. It looks to God and his work in others. Does that make sense? But Paul's contentment, his joy, is not dependent on their gift, on their support. It has certainly caused him to rejoice, but even without their support, even without the gift, he would have what? Reason to rejoice. He wants to be clear on that. So how else is joy better than happiness? Number two, Christian joy is not dependent on one's circumstances. The same cannot be said of happiness. Again, for so many in our culture, it's, I got the new job, so I'm what? I'm happy. I lost my job. I'm, I'm unhappy. Right? I'm unhappy. But joy is different, isn't it? I lost my job, but I still have joy. I'm still redeemed. I'm still forgiven. I'm still a new creation. I'm still adopted into God's family. I still have the hope of eternal life. I still belong to God's church. I still have the Holy Spirit. I still have eternal assurance. I still have reason for what? For joy. Joy is different. Listen to Paul, verse 11. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. And this is, man, this is killer right here. Underline this in your Bibles. For I have learned. And this is encouraging. This one verb, learned, I'm going to unpack it. This is so helpful for us. For I have learned, in whatever situation I am, to be content. Okay, so again, Paul's wanting to be clear here. Even without the gift, what would he have? Joy. I'm not speaking of being in need, Paul says. For I have learned what? In whatever situation I am, to be what? Content. And I'm going to equate contentment, autarkia, with joy. Joy. What is Paul saying here? He's saying that nothing is lacking in his life. He develops this more in verse 12. The verb that stands out in verse 11 is learned. This verb is really important, especially here. Paul says, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. What does learning denote? It's a process, right? Do we learn things immediately all the time? You get a new job. Hey, day one, if you don't learn everything, you're fired. Uh, what? It's a new job. I don't know what I'm doing. Typically, our bosses are patient with us, right? There's, again, what's the expectation? There's, there's a process to learn these things. The verb here is manthano, manthano, to learn. And it denotes a process, time, and experience. I'm so encouraged that Paul does not say, not that I'm speaking of being in need, 
for I know. He says, for I've learned. I've learned. This verb, manthano, means to come to a realization through experience. This, namely contentment, is something we learn over time as followers of Christ. Why is that encouraging, church? What does that teach us about God? He's patient, right? Hey, listen, church, if, you know, we, the elders met, I'm not going to go there because I don't get in trouble because that's not how we operate. But what if, what if the church decided, as a church, hey, listen, if you're not 100% content right now, you're out. Okay, who'd be left? Nobody, right? It's a process. It's something we learn over time to be what? To be content. We grow in this through time and experience. And, and how does the Lord do it? How does the Lord cultivate contentment in the church, I wonder? The Lord, listen, will use our circumstances to drive us toward greater and greater dependency on him. Amen? What he's learned is to be content in whatever situation he's in. Now, the word content here, this is a great word. Artarkis. Artarkis. I really can't think of a helpful way to remember that. You know, I had some crazy mnemonic devices when I was in seminary, but the word for contentment is autarkis. And it refers to a state of being content with one's circumstances. Okay? Paul uses a related word, autarkia, in 1 Timothy 6, 6, and 7. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Amen. We brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. So what, what is the, this is so cool, and this is going to rock your world. So if you're tired, just wake up. Slap yourself in the face. Don't miss this, please. What is the background for this term, autarkia, contentment? This is really helpful. Because in the ancient world, it was used much differently. Paul changes the word. How dare you, Paul? Paul can do that. He's inspired by the Spirit, okay? So what is the background for this term? Peter O'Brien writes, the, the Stoics, those Stoics were a, a group of philosophers. He writes, in Stoic ethics, autarkia, what does that word mean? Contentment, right? Contentment. Was regarded as the essence of all virtues. Like, this is it. Everyone strove. Is that, is that a word, strove? Okay, good. I made it up. Like Paul. Uh, to be content. It was the essence of all virtues. Now, here's what it described. It described the cultivated attitude of the wise person who had become independent of all things and all people, relying on himself because of his innate resources. That does not sound biblical. Is that how Paul uses the word? Say it in Spanish. Where's Luis? No. Yeah, no. According to this way of thinking. Okay, that was Peter O'Brien. According to this way of thinking, contentment was not dictated by one's circumstances or resources, but in one's self-dependence, an independence of all things and all persons. That's not how Paul uses the word. Okay? So, however, Paul transformed the meaning of this word when he applied it to himself. Paul's contentment was not in self, others, or other things, but in Say it! In Christ! 
His contentment was not in himself. It was not in other things. It was not in other people. It was in Christ. You know, yes, Christ is a person. But his contentment was in Christ. He refused to embrace self-sufficiency, but rather embraced Christ's sufficiency. Amen. Right? Christ's sufficiency. He was not self-content, but Christ-content. Paul is not sufficient. He would admit that. I'm not sufficient. But one is who? Christ. I've mentioned I spent a little time in Africa back in 2010. Lived there for half that year, teaching at a Baptist seminary. I learned something very quickly about these African brothers and sisters. For many of them, I can't say for all because I don't know all their hearts, but for many of them that I did life with, their contentment was rooted in Christ. Let me describe for you the poverty I saw there where I lived. I learned who kids were, not by their names initially. Some of their names were hard to learn. I learned based on what they wore because they typically had one set of clothes. These kids wore the same thing every day. Maybe during the weekend their parents would wash it and then for the next six days, again, they're wearing that same outfit. And yet, even in the midst of such poverty. These people went without. They had so much joy. They were content. Why? The believers. I'm talking about the believers I met, the Christians there. Why were they content? They struggled. But why were they content? Because they had Christ. Amen? They had Christ. Are you fully satisfied in Christ alone? How do we know? What is the evidence that we are content in Christ? Do you have joy? Joy is the indicator of satisfaction in Christ. Of Christ's sufficiency. (laughs) Joy is the opposite of anxiety and worry. Now, all of us will battle anxiety and worry. But as we grow in our contentment, our Christ sufficiency, we will also grow in our joy. Amen? We'll grow in our joy. So Paul's attitude here is to be imitated. Recall Philippians 4, 6. Not be anxious about anything, right? Now, this may, what causes anxiety? Worry. This may have been due to the threat of poverty, the, the threat of going without that was associated with persecution, okay? Very likely. Recall Jesus' words in Matthew 6, 25 and 33. Do not be anxious about your life what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Anxiety and worry are typically related to our obsession with stuff. We value the stuff more than God. And we're worried that the stuff, our our comforts, our money, our job, may be taken away. And this is what often causes anxiety. The remedy is to treasure Christ more. Amen? The remedy is to treasure Christ more. If you are seeking satisfaction, contentment in anyone or anything other than Christ, you will be what? Sorely disappointed. And you will continue to struggle with anxiety and worry. That job is not enough. It's not. Your job, your career will not make a good foundation. That boyfriend or girlfriend will not make a good foundation. 
They're not enough. That dollar amount is not enough. That car, oh, if I had that car. Oh, snap, if I had that car. It's not enough. For Paul, Christ alone was enough. Christ was sufficient for contentment. What did Paul have? Christ sufficiency. Amen? Is this making sense? For Paul, his circumstances did not determine his contentment, his joy, but something else. In verse 12, Paul provides a series of situations in which he has learned contentment. Listen, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any, in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul's satisfaction, his contentment, his joy is not affected by having plenty or none. His attitude is Christ-centered. Christ is everything. So let's be on guard. This is a warning. Let's be on guard against attributing joy-producing power, joy-producing satisfaction to material abundance. This leads to idolatry, the obsession with stuff. The world says the one who dies with the most toys wins. Who's heard that one? I say false. He who dies having lived fully satisfied in Christ wins. Amen? Recall Jesus' words in Mark 8, Mark 8, 36 and 37. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? That's rhetorical. What's the answer? Nothing. As seen just a few verses prior in Mark 8, 34, at the heart of true discipleship is self-denial for the sake of Christ-centeredness. This passage, our text today, cuts the legs out from under the health and wealth gospel. Again, this pseudo-gospel declares that a relationship with Christ inevitably means material blessing. It seeks to place, this is why it's so dangerous. This is why the, the health and wealth gospel is so dangerous. It seeks to place God in our debt. You owe me, God. I've trusted you, so you owe me. You owe me. <laughs> Be careful. <laughs> Paul is saying, this is Paul, even in the absence of material blessing, I am content in Christ. Now, when that blessing comes, who does he rejoice in? The Lord. But if you take it away, if he has nothing, what does he still have? Joy, because his contentment is in who? Christ. Christ alone. Again, there's not a direct correlation between the two. In fact, you may go without your whole life, and yet if your contentment remains in Christ alone, you are surely rich beyond measure. The prosperity gospel, and I don't want to say too much more about this, but the prosperity gospel seeks to elevate the physical over the spiritual. Is there coming a day when we'll be completely healthy? Resurrection bodies? No more sadness, no more death, no more pain, no more tears. Yes, but has it come yet? No. But is it ours in Christ one day? Yes. In verse 12, Paul writes, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. What does he mean by the secret? It's the verb mueo, mueo. It means to learn the secret of something which implies going through a difficult process, a learning experience. As seen in verse 11, 
Paul had learned to depend on the Lord through a series of difficult circumstances. Again, do we want difficult circumstances? Do we trust the Lord in the midst of them to grow us and to make us more like Christ? We should. Again, this idea is highlighted throughout the writings of Paul and others, right? Namely, the idea that the Lord sanctifies his people through suffering and trials. Firstly, I know you have grown so much through what you've gone through, right? You've learned to depend on the Lord more. Miss Ann, you as well. You ladies have suffered well by the grace of God, but through your suffering, I believe the Lord has sanctified you. And I know you don't like that, but you look back and you say, thank you, Lord. You've grown me, amen? If you have suffered, Max and Katie, guys, I mean, man, that post, Katie, I was weeping. My wife said, what's wrong with you? I don't know. I shared it with her. But the Lord has used this season to grow you guys, amen? Listen to James, James 1, 2 to 4. Count in all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces what? Steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Romans 5, 3 and 4, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces what? Endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. There was also a lesson to be learned when Paul had plenty. And what was that? Ongoing dependence upon the Lord. It was the recognition that all the good things that Paul had came from who? I think it's so interesting that he directs his joy to who? Is he thankful for the church? Yes. But on account of their provision, he rejoices in the in the Lord. So even when he has plenty, who is he depending on? Who is he recognizing? The Lord. That's really important. Why is this important? I'm going to skip this quote here from Richard Mellick. It's a good one. If you want it, you can email me or call me. But what's the danger here? There are two opposite but equally destructive dangers here. The danger in having too little is the potential move toward despair. Going without reveals our hearts, what we treasure. is true. It's the lie that if we don't have this or that, then I cannot have joy. But if you have Christ, even if everything else is taken away, can you have joy? Yes. The danger of having too much is the potential move toward independence. The attitude of, I'm good, I, I have what I need, why would I need God? Paul has learned the secret to facing these two extremes. But how? How else is joy greater than happiness? Number three, Christian joy is rooted in the risen king. It's rooted in the risen king. This is the secret. This is why Christian joy is not fleeting or transient. Why it doesn't come and go. And why it's not affected by our circumstances. It's grounded in the victorious one. The righteous one. The one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. The one whose strength doesn't run out. Is that encouraging? Let me say this again. The Lord's strength doesn't run out. The Lord's strength doesn't run out. Verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. 
Here lies the secret of true joy. Now, this is a favorite verse for many Christians. I had it engraved on my class ring, Philippians 4.13. But, unfortunately, it is one of the most misapplied verses, misunderstood verses, taken out of context verses in the Bible. Let me give you some examples here. Imagine an athlete, a fighter. He steps into the ring and he realizes, what have I done? This guy outweighs about 100 pounds. His record is 100 and zero. Mine's zero and 100. But wait, I'm a Christian. Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ. Is that how Paul intended it? All right, this is my favorite one. Young freshman boy in love with the senior beauty queen. His friends say, hey, bro, you should ask her out. Oh, dude, I don't stand a chance. Wait. I remember Chris on Sunday mentioned Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Where is she? Let's go. Bro. <laughs> if I'm the, the, the rational friend, I'm like, don't do it. <laughs> Another one, and this is the last one I promise, and I have actually seen this one. Maybe I've actually practiced this one foolishly. Class begins. The teacher comes forward. Guys, today's test day. Are you kidding me? Bro, I totally forgot. This is worth half our grade. I didn't study. <sighs> Philippians 4.13. Your friend's like, what? I can do all things. No, listen, that's not what it means. We're almost done, so bear with me. Peter O'Brien notes, this favorite statement of the apostle has often been quoted without regard to its context and understood at a popular level to mean that when Paul was empowered by Christ, nothing was beyond his capabilities. <laughs> what is Paul really stating in verse 13? Again, we cannot forget the context. Jesus is king. Context is queen. How does verse 13 relate to verses 10 to 12? Again, we cannot read verse 13 while ignoring verses 10 to 12. Those who are united to Christ by faith have access to his strength for facing any and every situation. But what does that really mean? It means Christ is sufficient. We can be content. We can have true joy no matter our circumstances because we have Christ and access to His strength. Does His strength run out? No. So no matter what God has sovereignly placed us in, He promises to give us the strength to endure. Amen? We will persevere because his strength does not run out. We can have joy in any situation because we have access to his strength. Amen? That doesn't mean we're going to win the game or get the girl or make a perfect grade on the test we didn't study for. But it does mean that through the Lord we can endure. We can face any trial and have contentment and joy because we have Christ. And again, does Christ's strength run out? For some reason, I wrote down a lot of Greek here. I, I, that's going to be confusing. Let me just focus on this verb, eskuo. I can do all things. It means to have power. It means to be competent. It means to be able. Now, this is interesting. Greek's a hard language because the syntax, uh, there's no consistent word order. Hebrew, for me, was much easier. Even though I'm reading from right to left, so it's counterintuitive, the, 
the syntax, right, that you, you would typically have the verb, subject, direct object every time. So you can identify the parts of speech. In Greek, the words are all mixed up. And so, but sometimes, oftentimes, the writer will front a word for emphasis. And what does he front here? Any Greek scholars out there? The word all. All is at the very beginning of the verse. All. It's fronted in Greek. And refers specifically to all what? Circumstances. All circumstances. Paul is saying, I am content in all circumstances I face. I am able to face these circumstances and maintain contentment and joy. But how? Where does Paul find what he needs to do this? Literally, the Greek here, in the one who strengthens me. The secret. Okay, if you're taking notes, just write this down. The secret to ongoing joy or unshakable joy is Christ. Now, you knew that. Chris, why did you take 40 minutes to tell us that? The secret to contentment, to true joy, is Christ's sufficiency, Christ's contentment. The foundation of Paul's contentment in any and every circumstance is the joy that comes from knowing and being in Christ, as seen in verse 13. How does one get in Christ? That's an odd question. How does one get in Christ? Well, obviously, this is the sovereign work, the gracious work of God. If Christ is the source of joy and contentment, the source of strength, does his strength run out? No. If he is the ultimate peace provider and joy giver, then how does one get in him? By, say it, faith. Faith. What's the problem? Now, if you're not a believer, listen to this. If you are a believer, listen to this. We are naturally born rebels. Were anybody born inside the garden here, the Garden of Eden? Anybody? I wasn't. I don't think any of us were, right? In fact, I know none of us were. We're sinners born outside of Christ. We naturally shake our fists at God saying, I'm king and you're not. We are born separated from God. But Christ came. He lived the life we could not live. He died the death we deserved, taking God's wrath for our sinfulness. And then what happened? Three days later, he rose again, proving that all his claims are true, by the way, and the work that him and the Father and the Son had planned in eternity past, it works. Amen? It worked. We must trust in him. It's not Christ died and was raised and therefore all will be saved. As Calvin said, faith is the spoon by which we take in Christ, by which we receive his saving benefits. We've got to believe, we've got to trust in Jesus. And when we trust in Jesus and his saving work, we are declared right before God and are now represented by a new king, the king, the victorious one, the righteous one. We are literally joined to Christ by faith in him. Amen? Let me read this quote by Rankin Wilbur. It's a great book. I've mentioned it uh, to Aaron recently. It's called Union with Christ. And he writes, Faith is how union with Christ becomes operative and powerful in your life. Faith is a God-given gift that allows you to take hold 
of God's having taken hold of you. I love that. If you are in Christ, this is now the defining truth of who you are. Your life, your story, becomes enfolded by another story, another's story. Who struggles to fight for joy? Who struggles with anxiety and worry? What do we do? Let me end with this. I'll be honest, I, I do, and I, I've, I've told some brothers this. I, I struggle from time to time with anxiety and worry and fear, getting caught up in my own circumstances. What is the remedy? Where do I turn? Where do we turn? What's Paul's secret? What do we learn from Paul in Philippians? He maintained an eternal perspective. Recall Philippians 1.21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's remembering what is ours in Christ because of the gospel. Forgiveness, adoption, and the promise of eternal life. Again, remember our first point. Christian joy assumes what? A new perspective. Those who think more about our future hope in Christ, the new heaven and the new earth, resurrection bodies, tend to live more joy-filled lives in the present. What we believe about God's future will affect how we live in the present. It's true. So maintain an eternal perspective. This is one way we fight for joy. What is the corporate implication here? What does this mean for the whole body, lastly? Again, who's Paul writing to? Is he writing to one person? Oh, he's writing to the, the church. How can we help each other here? We must, look around, we must remind each other of the promises of God. We must speak the gospel to one another. How often do you speak the gospel to a fellow believer here at Kelty's? How often do you remind a fellow believer here of the promises of God? Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing, what? One another. In all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. In conclusion, and I'm going to bring it all back. I hope this makes sense. Paul demonstrates for us in that text the evidence of sanctification by one celebrating the relational unity he shares with the church in Philippi as seen in their willingness to partner with him financially in the spread of the gospel. He demonstrates the fruit of sanctification by rejoicing in the gospel's work both in his life and in the church's life. And finally, he demonstrates the fruit of sanctification by redirecting his thoughts to the Lord in the face of suffering for the sake of ongoing perseverance. Christian joy is greater than happiness and can be found in Christ alone. Rest in him. Proclaim him to others so that others may know the joy that we have in Christ. So question number one do you have this joy? How can you have it? Get in Christ. Trust in Jesus. Turn from your sin. Embrace Jesus in faith. Believe in what he did. Give him your life. And if you can say, yeah, bro, I have that joy. Well, don't you want others to have it? What should we do, church? We go and tell others the good news that true 
lasting joy, not dependent on our circumstances, can be found in Christ. And we evangelize. And listen, lastly, if you see brothers and sisters struggling with anxiety and worry, remind them of the promises of God. Point them to Jesus. Talk about the eternal perspective. We know the end of the story. Amen? We have joy. Let's pray. Father, simply put, we rejoice in you this morning because we know that if we have your Son, if we have Christ as our Lord and Savior, then we have joy. We thank you for this joy. We thank you for the contentment that is found in Christ. I pray that, Father, we would be on guard against the lies of the enemy and the lies of the world, that joy and contentment can be found in the things of this world. Help us to be on guard, to be reminded that only in Christ is true joy, true contentment found. And I pray that we would leave this place this morning excited to take this message to the world around us, to declare the joy found in the gospel in a relationship with Jesus, who is Savior, King, and Lord. And it's in his name we pray, and all God's people said, amen.